0: Lord, we are grateful that you have given us truth. We're grateful that you are truth. Uh, We have, uh, uh, Lord, we've heard lies all day long. We've heard half-truths. That's just what we've heard. Uh, You hear it all. How grateful we are that we can count on what you say. You have never broken a promise. You have always come through. You ask us to live by faith, trusting in you and your word. Uh, Anyone who has ever done that has never been let down, ever. So that encourages us, because some of us are in some tough straits. And we're wondering, we're wondering, (sighs) some of us, if it is true. We are... uh, we're not afraid to look at what you say. We're not afraid to um, ask questions. Scripture says, come, let us reason together. If it's true, it's true. If, it tr- if it's true, it bears up under investigation. It's true. And we are grateful. Uh, Lord, it is true when it comes to the uh, deepest questions of life. It is true when it comes to uh, the reality of what we face every day. And it is true when we look at death and uh, face it uh, eyeball to eyeball. What you say is true. I think of that passage in Hebrews that talks about the fact that you have taken away from us the fear of death. By what you did on the cross. So once again we ask that you would make this time profitable. A lot of hurting people. I'm thinking about the guy that uh, I heard about today who's going blind at 45. He's got a wife and he's got three kids and he doesn't know how he's going to do his work. He doesn't have a clue. Uh, we, we don't know him, the vast majority of us here, but we pray for him. He'll find your faithfulness to be there even if the sight is gone you'll still be there and you'll make a way. That is easy for us to say but it has been proven over the centuries and will continue to be proven. I thank you Lord for that answer to prayer that I saw today at lunchtime. I prayed about it early this morning And at one o'clock, there it was. That was amazing. I thank you for that. We were very grateful. We pray these things, all these things, in Jesus' name. Because it's the only name that has power. Amen. If you've been with us, we have been... Uh, this fall, looking at the life of Paul, and we have been what we've been doing is kind of hopscotching. <clears throat> Guys don't normally hopscotch, but we've been, especially at our age, but we have been landing on certain sections of Second Corinthians because Paul opens up his life and he kind of gives you a glimpse into his guts. Of what he's going through and what he's dealing with. When you look at history, Paul has to be right at the top in terms of leaders. Now, you know, the world's going to talk about Alexander the Great and, you know, all this kind of jazz, but I'm talking about eternity. I'm talking about making a difference forever. I'm talking about people's lives being changed. Paul's right up there at the top. You got Moses in the Old Testament, you got Daniel, you got Abraham, you got some greats. You got Elijah. Uh, you know, Paul is right at the top. Uh, his life wasn't easy because God had great plans for him. And the reason we've been looking at his life is because the process that God took Paul through is, is a normative process. When God wants to take a man, and he wants to build the man, and he wants to use a man in a significant way, which a lot of times the world doesn't think is significant, God takes a guy through a process that is a hard process. It's not an easy process. And uh, many of us in this room are in that process and in the hard places of that process and really feeling the heat and really suffering some loss in our lives well that's why we've been looking at Paul because he knew all about that and a lot of times when you're going through things like that in your life and you're going through chapters like that in your life you look around at other people that are close to you and they're not going through anything like that at all and you begin to think you're the only guy that's why it's so good to look at someone like Paul and to see, well, you know what he went through it. And if you look at Moses, he went through it. And if you look at uh, Daniel, he went through it. You, you look at these men in the Scripture of whom we have a biographical sketch, and you see the process. Uh, in some lives, you get more detail than others, but the process is there. They didn't escape it. We're not going to escape it. Uh, and and we've said this before. But this process is so hard and it's so difficult, nobody in their right mind would sign up for it. Now, we'll go sign up for classes. We'll go sign up for a theology class or an apologetics class to learn how to defend our faith and all that. That's all good stuff. You might go down and take a night course at Dallas Seminary. That's great. This stuff, this, this learning to walk by faith stuff, nobody in their right mind would sign up for And nobody does. Therefore, what happens is God signs you up. And he puts you in the class. And as C.S. Lewis said, he went into the kingdom kicking and screaming. That's how we go into the, uh, uh, the process of becoming the man that God wants us to become. We go in kicking and screaming. I didn't sign up for this. That's exactly right. But guess what? You're in the army now. Onward, Christian soldiers. Now tonight, tonight's significant. I'll tell you why it's significant. Uh, Paul's coming to the end. Some of you guys were in the study last spring. Remember that? You remember that far back? Excuse me. And I I think the last session we had in May, someone asked me what I was doing over the summer, and I said, I'm going to write a book over the summer, a short book. It's, it's not the size of the books I normally do. It's a short book, and I'm writing it to college students. And the title is How to Ruin Your Life by 40. And uh, I said, I'm going to have it done by the end of the summer. And I got it done. But it wasn't good enough for me. It needed some more work. I thought that would be an easy book. It's been a very hard book. And uh, so here we are in the last session of the fall semester. And you might ask, well, what are you going to do over the break? I'm going to finish this book. Uh, this real easy book that I've been working on. Um, so I'm going to have it done hopefully, by Christmas and, and hand it in. And, but a couple weeks ago, my son Josh, who's my youngest, uh, I asked him to read the manuscript, and uh, my daughter Rachel's read it, and John's been in firefighting academy, and he hasn't had time to read it. And uh, so Rachel gave me comments early on, and about two weeks ago I was talking with Josh and, uh, and we were at dinner, and Mary was with us, and he, he said, "Dad, I read that, and I'm sorry, it took me so long, but you know, he's taking a full load. And he said, "I got some, I got some ideas." I said, "Great." And uh, he started giving me some of these ideas. He, he said, because you know, Dad, he said, um, "You're writing this for college students?" And I said, "Yeah." And I, I, I said, "You know, I'm a little out of my league here." And uh, he said, well, you know, we spend a lot of time in our cars, and we grew up being carpooled. And uh, so much of our lives are, are, in, are in cars. And he said, you know, Dad, you're writing about how to ruin your life by 40. And I said, yeah. He said, you, have you ever driven down a road, and you go about five or six miles, and you look up and you realize that for the last five or six miles, you had absolutely no idea how you got to where you just got to because you were so distracted? and your mind was somewhere else? And I said, yeah. He said, that's what's gonna happen to these kids that are 20, they're gonna look up and they're gonna be 40 and they're not gonna know how they got there. And they paid no attention to the road. I said, that's very good, Josh. I said, you got any more of those? (laughs) And he had a whole bunch more. And he'd been thinking. And I, I said, this is really good. He said, Dad, I've been thinking about this stuff for two years. I'm in rightness. I said, You got this written down? He goes, Yeah. I said, Well, I don't want to take your stuff. He said, Well, he said, I think, he said, I think you ought to. And uh, I said, Okay. <laughs> it was an easy sell because uh, it's been hard for me. I'm, I'm talking, to, I don't usually talk to these kids. It's really been interesting. I'm kind of being flippant here. Josh had some remarkable thoughts, and we're going to work on this over the next few weeks. Uh, What I've come up with, this actually was my idea, is that life is a road trip. And it is. You know what we've got here tonight? Paul's at the end of the road trip. He's, he's at the end. Uh, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4. <clears throat> now, if you're in your 20s or your 30s, uh, those are in your 20s, you're just getting started on the road trip. What I'm saying to these kids in this book is that the first 20 years of your life, your parents have made the decisions for you. The next 20 years of your life, you're making the decisions. So what do you want your life to look like at 40? Well, it's going to depend on the caliber of wisdom that you use in making the decisions for your life. And you are going to wake up one day, and you're going to be 40, and you're going to wonder, how did I get here? Because your mind has been in other places. Um, Some of you are in your 40s, so you're halfway down the road trip, you would hope. So here's the thing about the road trip. We never know when it's going to come to an end. If you're 40, you think you have 40 more years. You're assuming that. Nobody in here, you know, who's 40 is thinking, I'm going to die in the next two minutes. That's not how we think. We assume We assume things. Just how, That's how we live our lives. If you're 25, you know, you assume you've got 50, 55, 60 years. Um... What we do know is that the road trip will come to an end. And then what happens? I, I, I just never cease to be amazed at the emphasis in our culture on planning for retirement and. And we all know that's a good thing to have a financial plan. We all know that. And the Bible talks about that. But the emphasis in our, in, in our culture and the amount of advertising in magazines and the amount of advertising in, uh, on television, commercials during sporting events. And I know I talked to, I think I mentioned this last week, but I, I, I just continue to be blown away by it. It's retirement, 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 put enough away, you know, da, 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 da. You know, great, fine, wonderful. But retirement comes to an end. You're going to die. And then, what the heck are you going to do? But they never talk about that. They don't want to talk about it. Nobody wants to hear it. So what we do is we deaden ourselves to thinking about death. It is is really healthy to think about death. It's very healthy to think about death frequently. Uh, Thinking about death frequently can save your life. But it takes some guts to do it. Because one day your road trip will come to an end. I'm on my way to Second Timothy 4. But on my way there, I want to stop off with Churchill. <clears throat> if a case could be made that Paul was one of the great leaders of all time, from a spiritual standpoint, I, I think, hands down, a case is made that the greatest leader of the 20th century is Churchill. So last night, I was reading this... Uh, biography by Martin Gilbert. Now, Gilbert was his authorized biographer. And this, uh, Gilbert did five volumes on Churchill. This is the Reader's Digest version. It really is. This is the abbreviated condensed cliff note version to the five-volume biography. I, I, I probably read, I'm going to say double digits now in terms of biographies on Churchill because the guy was, it was just magnificent. What a life. Um, But I was reading last night, at the end of his life, Churchill died in uh, 1965. But in, uh, I'll just give you a couple of blurbs here. He'd had a stroke. This was in uh, 1964. Later that April, Churchill returned to Monte Carlo for two weeks. He was recuperating. Then he flew back to London. As the the result of considerable urging from Clementine, his wife, he agreed not to stand again for Parliament. I love this. Guy had these strokes. Sucker's 89 years old, and she has to convince him not to run again for Parliament. Isn't that great? Uh, There was no retirement in this guy's thinking. Now, he took breaks. He had to as he got older. But there was still the fire. The body might have been breaking down. But you still saw the the steel glint in his eyes. It was still there. He just couldn't pull it off physically. So he agreed not to run for parliament. And he'd been in parliament since he was 21 years old. In June, he returned to Monte Carlo and to the Christina, a, a, a private yacht. The cruise, which was to be his last, took him to Sardinia and Athens. Back in London in July, he went once more to the House of Commons, where the MPs were shocked by his frailty. Two weeks later, he suffered another stroke. That October, his daughter Diana committed suicide. She was 54 years old and had long suffered from depression. His daughter Mary wrote these words about telling her father about Diana's death suicide. The lethargy of extreme old age dulls many sensibilities and my father only took in slowly what I had to tell him but then he withdrew into a great and distant silence. That didn't help him. Two days before his 89th birthday Churchill went to the House of Commons again he was brought into the chamber in a wheelchair He returned twice more to the commons, his last visit being July 27, 1964. In mid-October, he left Chartwell for London for the last time. That's a significant sentence. Chartwell was his country home in Kent, just an hour south of London. He'd lived there for 40 years. You can visit Chartwell. If you ever get a chance, go. It's where he wrote all of his great works in that upstairs study off to the right, as you enter in from the front, that was constructed in the 15th century. That's where he wrote. That's where he dictated the secretaries till about four o'clock in the morning. And uh, he loved Chartwell. You know, he had a time where he was in the wilderness politically, and uh, there was a period where he was out of Parliament actually in the 30s. He was in the political wilderness, and all he could do, uh, you can see the, the small lakes, ponds that he built. You can see the, uh, he, he, became a, he became a mason. He became a bricklayer. That's how he, that was recreation for him. So you can see the, uh, the house that he built for his little girl, the dollhouse. You can see the, the beautiful brick walls around Chartwell. Well, he did those. Um, he loved Chartwell. It was a sanctuary. Uh, that's where he raised his family. lived there for 40 years. Mid-October, he left Chartwell for London for the last time. <clears throat> On November 30th, he was 90. January 10th, 1965, Churchill suffered a massive stroke. Two weeks later he died. On the previous page, I marked this. The year before his daughter Diana took her life, he was recuperating on a cruise on this yacht. They were in the West Indies. Returning to England, he remarked to his daughter Diana. (coughs) Excuse me. He remarked to her, (coughs) Catch this. My life is over, but it is not yet ended. That's a line, isn't it? My life is over, but it is not yet ended. Sometimes that's how we go out. Excuse me, I got some allergy drainage going here. Now the reason I'm starting with this, excuse me, As I cough into the microphone, with great amplification, anybody got something I can take? What do you got? (laughs) I've got nothing. What do you got there, guy? Got a cough drop? I mean, is it a real cough drop? What do you What do you have? Yeah, what's this? That's from France. I don't want that. Paragina or something? What's this? They seem to soothe the throat. I need Smith Brothers, that's what I need. Just... Anybody got a Snickers bar? <laughs> <laughs> Little blue pills, yeah. All right, well, I'm sorry, guys. But let me see if I can snag this. Has this been in your pocket for six months, guy? <laughs> Trying to unpeel this sucker is like peeling an orange. I might have to go with a French thing here. It will soothe, soothe my throat. Probably make me passive. <laughs> It'll make me passive and fearful. Want to and very concili—yeah, I want to surrender. <laughs> I set all that up with Churchill to say this: my life is over, but it is not yet ended. That's how Paul went out. Now, with that in mind, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 4. Paul is in prison, probably here in Rome. He he will be beheaded in a few months. Peter will die roughly the same year. He'll he'll be martyred as well. I'm going to pick up chapter 4, verse 1, because he's talking to young Timothy. Think of this. This isn't I have a little book at home, Famous Last Words. These aren't Paul's last words, but perhaps the last words he penned to p- Timothy. And in that little book, Famous Last Words, I, uh, I ate breakfast in Justin, Texas one day this week, some old cafe. And I'm walking out. There was this. They had all these old posters, and there was a poster of Pancho Villa, and it was, a, it was a poster that had been printed, inviting gringos to come and fight with Pancho Villa. And, how, and it said how much he'd pay them in gold. Now, interestingly enough, a couple days before, I was looking at that little book, Famous Last Words. And in there were the last words of Pancho Villa on his deathbed. You know what he said? I need to think of something important to say. But he, but he couldn't. <clears throat> and he died without having said anything important. Last words of Panchovi, I need to think of something important to say. Here's what Paul says in Second Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. See, that was on his mind. Because he knew it was soon. And by his appearing in his kingdom, what does he say to young Timothy, this young pastor? He says, Preach the word. He doesn't say grow a church. He didn't say he not say use gimmicks to get people in. He didn't he didn't say run a big contest and give away a trip to Maui. He didn't say dumb down the truth. He didn't say try to be culturally relevant. What did he say? He said, preach the word. David Wells has pointed out the problem with the modern American church, evangelical church, is that we really don't believe anymore that the Bible has the power to change lives. But it does. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. See, that's what Paul did in his life. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, that's our time. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. I, I, think, uh, I, I think there are a lot of evangelical churches that are doing this. They're tickling people's ears on purpose. Well, we can't declare, the you know, we we can't preach everything that's in here because people, they won't come back. Would they come out and say that? Probably not. But it's going on. You can draw a big crowd tickling people's ears. Especially in Texas. Because it's the thing to do to go to church. I'm I'm glad we have a pastor that doesn't do that. Aren't you? And you know, there are a lot of guys that don't do this. There's a lot of guys who do. Verse 4, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Now here we go, 6 and 7. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This is where Churchill's line fits. My life is over, but it is not yet ended. Paul knew he was at the end. And essentially, he's in prison, and he's going to die in prison. He's going to be beheaded. So when you die, there'll be a service, and then they'll bury you somewhere, There'll be some kind of headstone somewhere, marker. When 9-11 happened, I thought about uh, Trinity Church, which is right close to the World Trade Center, just off of Wall Street. George Washington worshiped in that church. If you've ever been there, you know that just outside is a, is a uh, cemetery. And it's so old, most of those people were buried there in the 1700s, that it's really hard to read the names, because time has uh, worn away the, uh, the cuttings in the stone. You can make some out, and you'll see a name. Sometimes you only see half a name. On some of them, you'll see the name. You'll see the date of birth. You'll see the, uh, the date of their death and then there'll be a phrase, there'll be a scripture. You've probably heard that there was a cemetery in Massachusetts, and there's a man's gravestone, his name, the two dates, and then it simply says, I told you I was sick. (laughs) That's really true. I think he had a lot more to say, but they couldn't get it on the stone. I think there was some bitterness there. Here's what Paul, any of these in verse 7, you could stick. Any of these would be great to put on a, on a gravestone. <clears throat> the time my departure has come. Catch this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, for see, when you die, the road trip doesn't end. A lot of people in our culture soothe their nerves about death by thinking they go out of existence. You don't go out of existence. Jesus said there's heaven and Jesus said there's hell. There is no purgatory. There is no annihilationism where you are annihilated and cease to exist and lose consciousness. No. Jesus said there's heaven and Jesus said there's hell. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to also all who have loved his appearance. Life is a road trip, but it's very short. Eternity is very long. Paul died by the world standard he was a loser. Paul died by the world standard he was a failure. Uh, really, really didn't have any money, didn't have an estate, didn't uh, have any property. He'd lost it all. <clears throat> Had given it up. Um, didn't, uh, hadn't started, started a school or a university. He could have, but he didn't. Um, he was just some guy dying in prison. But what the world would scorn, uh, he, he wouldn't have gotten his obituary in the New York Times. See, if you make the New York Times obituary, you're big time. You did something by the world standards. Uh, Paul invested his life in the right things. And looking back on his life, and here he is now, guys. Here he is, facing imminent death. He makes three statements. Number one, I have fought the good fight. Now, we're not at the end yet. We're still fighting the fight. Timothy was fighting the fight but Paul's at the end and he says I have fought the good fight if you flip over to 1st Timothy 1 in this first letter to Timothy he actually addressed this issue of fighting the good fight uh, to Timothy now the context of 1st Timothy is Timothy's a young rookie pastor he's discouraged he's in over his head Paul is going to encourage him. Uh, Some of us are discouraged tonight. Because sometimes life is discouraging. You're not where you want to be. Here's what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 18. This command I entrust you Timothy my son in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you. Now we don't know what those prophecies were. But Timothy knew and Paul knew And he reminded Timothy to encourage him of what had been said about Timothy and about his ministry. So once again, just an attempt to encourage him. And then he says this, that by them you may fight the good fight. Now here's that phrase. Later on, Paul's at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. Now here he's telling Timothy to fight the good fight. The question is, for those of us not at the end of the road trip, but in the middle of the road trip or somewhere on the road trip, how do we fight the good fight? Notice what he says keeping faith and a good conscience right there is your definition on how to fight the good fight Yogi Berra was the guy who said if you come to a fork in the road take it that makes no sense to anybody except Yogi Berra it makes all kinds of sense if you want to fight the good fight Paul says I have fought the good fight Okay, that's great. How did he do it? How do you go about fighting the good fight? Well, it's precisely, he breaks it down and explains it to Timothy. You fight the good fight by doing two things by keeping faith and a good conscience. He doesn't say keeping faith or a good conscience. To fight the good fight, you have to do two things consistently in your life. you in a fight? Uh, if you're following Christ, you're in a fight. You bet you're in a fight. Uh, The enemy hates your guts if you love Christ. When you get serious about Christ, the enemy gets serious about you. How do you go about fighting a good fight? The first thing he says is keeping faith. What does that mean? Uh, Is it not Romans 10? It says faith comes by hearing, and hearing what? The word of God. All right, think about that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That's where faith comes from. It's from the word of God. So if you're going to keep faith, you must continue in the word of God. Does that make sense? See, you cannot separate faith from the word of God. To keep faith requires being in the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So if you're going to fight the good fight, you must keep faith. What does that mean? The scripture has to be real to you, and you have to make room for it in your life. So why is it just about every morning that when I go to pick up my Bible, I, 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 I kind of have a thing. I, I read through the Bible every year, and here's my Bible reading calendar. It's from Robert Murray McChain. He, did, he put this together about 300 years ago. Not, not these two sheets, but the, the, I've, just, I've had this for about three years, and I'm, it's about time to break in a new, a new copy. But So this morning I went to read my, my four verses and kings and, and psalms. and uh, You know what's interesting? As I went to reach for my Bible, you know what I was tempted to do? I was tempted to pick up the sports page. That happens to me all the time. All the time. Now can I tell you what's really interesting? I go to pick up the sports page, I'm never tempted to pick up my Bible. (laughs) Why is that? Well I think it's because the enemy is a liar and he's a deceiver. And what he does not want me interacting with is truth. I learned this from my dad, and he learned it from his dad. It's really good to start the day uh, with a briefing from the Commander-in-Chief. Don't you think? See, I'm going to hear lies all day long, and so are you. So what's really good is to start with truth. You know, it kind of gets you in balance. Kind of gets you lined up just right. <clears throat> Has that ever happened to you? You go to read the scriptures? Maybe you're going to read them before you go to bed at night. What happens? I mean, you, you, you didn't even get Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. Isn't that amazing? Or you're going to get up and read them first thing in the morning. What happens? There's a there's a, there's a brand new ink-still-wet newspaper right in front of you. What's the temptation? Yeah, I'll just pick up the paper. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. It's just what we deal with. Why do we deal with it? Because the enemy doesn't want us in the Word of God. And if, you know, we, it breaks our heart when you see these deals on TV of these, these people in Africa that are starving because food's available, but dictators won't give them food and there's all kind of turf wars or or money's being funneled into swiss bank accounts and you see these broken down people malnourished they can't even lift their heads these little kids believers can get that way if we don't consistently feed on the word of god <clears throat> and i'm not talking about studying the bible twelve hours a day i'm not talking about that i'm talking about making room in your day at some point where you feed on the word of god you got a long commute <clears throat> they got the Bible on CD. So stick it in there for 15 minutes. Listen to John 6 on the way to work. And then turn off the radio and think about what you just listened to. By word I have hid my heart that I may not sin against thee. How can a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to that word? Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. That's all in the first verses of Psalm 119. The enemy doesn't want me doing that. He doesn't want you doing that. He's going to fight us tooth and nail right there, guys. That's why I got my study I do for what I teach. But this kind of keeps me... You know what? I just use this because it kind of keeps me... It's what I do. You know? It's just... Don't you eat breakfast? Or you eat something. You got to... Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So that means this Bible contains your, <clears throat> your vitamins, your minerals, your A, E, C, chromium, potassium, selenium. All, all, it's all there. But you're going to get resistant. See, fighting the good fight means you stay in the word of God. But it's just not knowing the Bible. See, that's where a lot of us make a mistake. It's just not knowing the Bible. Uh, It's keeping faith and a good conscience. In this little book, How to Ruin Your Life by 40, i got a chapter in there where I'm talking to these kids about... uh, about people that I know personally in their 20s who were following Christ with their whole heart and who ruined their life by 40. And then I go to David in Bathsheba because we're not sure how old David was but he was somewhere around 40. And David was just cruising. Everything was great in David's life until then and he had a head-on collision on the road trip if you will. Um. But see, David was anointed to be king when he was probably still a teenager. But he didn't ascend the throne to be king until he was 30. Samuel would have given him instruction from the word of God that was directed to kings of Israel. One of those passages would have been Deuteronomy 17, 17. It said three things, but one thing in particular. It said the king of Israel should only have one wife. By the time David got on the throne... Um, he probably had eight wives. So you see, here's the point that we're making. Those who crash and burn at 40, see there were hidden things going on in their lives. In their 20s and 30s, where the spirit of God, there was a red light going off on their dashboard. And they wouldn't respond. And instead of respond, every time David took another wife, do you think the Spirit of God kind of went, as he was considering? the Spirit of God ever do that to you? You know, conscience is a nerve. You guys know that? It's a nerve. And I find in my life, when I err, when I cross the Word of God, it's like the Spirit of God goes, right on that nerve. Why is he doing that? He's trying to save my life. That's time to confess sin. That's time to get, get squared away. When, um, <clears throat> when we resist the spirit of God, every time he flicks your conscience, that nerve, and you resist him, you put a layer of callousness on that nerve. And weeks can go by and months can go by and then years go by. it's so sad to me I did a book called Finishing Strong and I wrote that for me because I'd seen so many guys who start strong in their 20's absolutely and I'm talking about great bible teachers when I was in college I used to drive 100 miles round trip to go hear a guy teach powerful in the scriptures a lot of college students went to hear this guy great communicator Uh, wrote a book that just went gangbusters. And I got to know him a little bit, really respected him, met his wife, had dinner with his family. My brother Mike, who went to SC, dated a girl that was a flight attendant. She's on a cross-country trip, New York, going into L.A. You know, it's midnight, everybody's asleep. So she's got everybody, you know, walk down the aisle everybody's fine she goes to sit down there's this other flight attendant sitting down reading his book this guy's book and Debbie sits down next to her and uh, she said you enjoying that book she said yeah she said yeah I am and uh, she said good she said how'd you you find out about it she said well I'm going out with this guy and Debbie said you're not going out with him she goes, oh, yeah, I am. Debbie says, no, you're not. You look at his pictures on the back cover. Oh, yeah, that's him. And she was not just going out with him, she was sleeping with him. And she was just one of many. It's, it's all documented. And when I heard that, you know what I thought to myself? I thought, how can that be? Because he's, he's so strong in the scriptures. But see, apparently, he was a little weak when it came to a good conscience. I have been stunned over the years. I remember sitting in a conference in Oregon, a pastor's conference. I'm sitting next to this big time preacher, his wife's with him. He's going from there to somewhere, Korea, I think, because they were implementing his program. And I read about four weeks later in Christianity Today that he's had an ongoing eight year affair with some gal in this church. His wife's there, he's looking me right in the eye. How do you do that? You know how you do it? Your conscience gets dead to the Spirit of God. See, so you don't respond to him. He's convicting us. We resist him. Nobody knows this is going on. Nobody knows except the Lord. Get up and teach. Come forward. I'm sleeping with some chick at an airport hotel in St. Louis somewhere. Nobody knows. How can you do that? See, it's keeping faith and a good conscience. That scares me. That scares me. See, guys, what we want to do is keep our consciences as tender as possible to the Spirit of God. See, that's how when you get to the end of your life, you can look your kids in the eye on your deathbed. And you can say, "Uh, I fought the good fight. Nobody's perfect, but you understand what we're saying here, don't you? Is there any greater gift you could give to your kids or your grandkids? So what does that mean for us right now? It means that if there's an area in our life where we're resisting the Spirit of God and nobody knows about it, and we're living a double life, you know what it means? It means if you don't want a train wreck, you better get it straight right now with the Lord. You can't spin him. You can't con him. Con other people can't con him, and your sin will find you out, it will find you out. Keeping faith, and another way of saying that don't just be hearers of the word, but be what doers. I almost want to stop right there, but just real quick. And, and you know what? I keep trying to get this page and I can't get it. There it is. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. 2 Timothy. There are three ways in the Christian life you can finish. Number one, you can finish strong. We all want to do that. Uh, You know how Paul finished? Paul finished strong. Uh, He hit the finish line with a great zeal and love for Christ. I think there are a couple other ways we can finish. We can finish so so, kind of medium. What happens there? I, I think we uh, put it on cruise control. I, I think we, uh, other things get into our hearts. I, I think uh, we don't, int- well, we don't intend to, but what, what happens is other things take the place of the Lord and, and we become idolaters. I mean, we'd never bow down to an image, but we got our idols. Some guys drive their idols. Some guys live in their idols. Some guys' financial statement, as their idol. It's very subtle, it can happen. So how do you keep that from happening? You just go before the Lord. And you say, Lord, how's my heart? How am I doing? I, I think the way you keep that from happening is that um, you got people in your life that you can talk real straight to. Not a lot, just you don't need a lot. You just need a couple, and you, you don't mess around. And you can trust them, and they trust you, and you can tell them what's in your heart. And you can you can ask them. Um, you see, you, you, what do you see? You see any red flags at all? You see me getting off course at all? You got anybody like that you can have that conversation with? And and you know they'll die for you. They're on your team. If you do, you need to take advantage of that. Is it Galatians 6 2 that says, Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ? The third way we can finish is we can finish poorly. We don't want to do that. That would be a huge waste. The, the name of the game is to finish strong. And you know, quite frankly, guys, um, <clears throat> the way you finish strong is by fighting the good fight. You keep faith. You stay in the Word of God. you keep a good conscience. No secrets. Is there anybody in your life who knows everything about your life? You need that. I need it. Anything you're hiding, you're asking for it. And see, what happens is, I had a guy ask me recently, he said, well, if you haven't kept a good conscience, how do you start doing that? And I said, well, that's a great question. It's a very honest question. It takes a lot of guts to ask that question. I said, you find somebody that you trust with your life, and they'll never reveal a confidence. And then that area of concern where you haven't kept a good conscience. See, James says, confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. See, the thing we don't want to do is we we don't want anybody to know about our secret. And so the enemy hangs that over us. And he intimidates us. And he terrorizes us that we're going to be found out. But James says, confess your sin one to another. Not to everybody, but to somebody you can trust. And see, when you confess that secret to someone else, what you've done is you've just outflanked the enemy. He's got nothing on you, does he? Because somebody else knows. Somebody who will pray for you. Somebody will check in with you. Somebody will encourage you. Confess your sin one to another. Pray for one another. That you may be healed. That's how you fight the good fight. That's how you finish strong. That's how you've hit the finish line. The way you want to hit it. It's all by his grace. It's all by his mercy. It's all of him. Let's pray. We'd like to think, Lord, that when we pick up in January, we'll all be here. But we may not all be here. I may not be here. We like to think we'll all be alive in January and in March and in uh, June and 4th of July and next Christmas and all that stuff. But we don't know. You know we don't know. I would ask for us, Lord, that you would help us to live wisely. Wisely. We, we, Lord, we're just guys. We, we, are just dust. We're weak. We, we've all messed up. We've all screwed up. But, Lord, we would love your. um, We're we're gonna, we're, we're gonna stand before you, and we don't want to be embarrassed. Our works are gonna be judged, not, not our salvation but our our works are going to be put through the fire, and that will be an issue of rewards in heaven. We would like to hear from you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You're you're not looking for perfection. You, You died for our imperfections. But you're looking for a heart. Lord, you're looking for a heart that loves you and that seeks to follow you and seeks to make things right when they're not right. You're full of mercy. So much mercy. You are so long-suffering. You are so gracious. I was reading a couple weeks about wicked King Ahab and he, made, he, he just made the slightest, slightest right move and you were all over him with grace and mercy. It was astonishing to read that again. He didn't last long. It was just a whimper. But you roared back with goodness to him. Uh, That's how you do it with us. So we revel in that goodness and mercy and kindness that comes from your hand. Give us the courage. to be honest about who we are and what's going on in our lives so that we can leave the legacy we would like to leave that would honor you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.